You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so tonight, Bezrus Hashem, we're taking a small detour away from the Torah as recorded in Lukutim Maharan, but not a detour away from Rabbi Nachman, Chas v'shalom, but more of a, a movement a little bit deeper into the teachings that Rabbi Nachman brought to this world. And on a certain level in my own mind, it feels like, a, like an ace la'asos la'ashem hifru sarasecha as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai describes in the beginning of the Ijra Rabbah, describing a situation to his Chavraya, to his Tamidim, and he announces, Ad emas amud alma achad samcha. Ad emas kayim alma achad samcha. How long will the world stand upon one pillar? Meaning, how long will the world titter for? Will it balance itself back and forth, back and forth, shaking us so much. We need to come, Rashbi said, and we need to be mitchazek. We need to strengthen ourselves to arrange the world, to create a situation where the world is the way it's meant to be. Not the way it is, but the way it's meant to be. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai starts crying and he says, Vai galina, vai galina, woe to me if I reveal these things, woe to me if I do not reveal these things an ambivalence in the space of necessity, which nevertheless gives birth to a speech, a language, a form of Torah that contains the very ambivalence about saying it itself. That there's a doubt that infuses itself, a doubt about whether these teachings can be said, that when our tzaddikim disclose them, the teachings themselves carry that doubt. So that not only do the teachings themselves emanate and emerge from a place of doubt, but they carry the very doubtful nature of the time period that they were said, and they elevate the doubt itself through the teachings themselves. Now, just like Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, when he saw that the world was tittering on the edge, when he saw that Baal Habayis Doichik, that the owner and the master of the house is pushing us, and there's a Dechika, there's a an impression, there's a squeezing, there's an intensity where people feel things more potently and more powerfully. It's specifically at that point when Rashbi was able to reveal to his Chavraya the deepest secrets, the secrets of the rectification of the world, the secrets of Tikkun. Now, similarly to the Avoid of Rashbi, as Rabbi Nachman explicitly states in the Hakdama, Tulukuta Maran, Luchu Chazu Mifalais Hashem associating his avoider, Rabbi Nachman associated his process of revealing Torah to the process of Rashbi revealing Torah. They're part of the Tzadike Hadoros, as Rav Morgenstern Morgenstern points out in the name of the Breslover Tzadikim. That in order to reveal a certain type of Torah, in order to reveal a certain Torah or teachings that are necessary, 
not because they're going to be intellectually stimulating, but because they're necessary for the, for the individual who hears them to the point of being saved by these words. That if we're not for the words of Rabbi Nachman, as we're going to see, a person wouldn't be able to survive on a certain level. And when these tzaddikim felt that the pressure and the water rose to such an extent that they had no choice left, at that point they began revealing Torahs that would not have been capable of being revealed beforehand. Now, Rabbi Nachman experiences this transition towards the end of his life. Towards the end of this tzaddik's short life, 39 years old. The 39 years that allowed him to see from one end of the world to the other end of the world, which allows us to believe in the words of Rabbi Nachman that they weren't only stated in their time, as we said so often in the name of Rabbi Nassan, but rather the words of Rabbi Nachman are for us in this time period as well. Ad like Rabbi Nachman says, Eish shali tukar My flame will burn until the coming of the Messiah. Something that historically can't really be argued with. Now, after Rabbi Nachman delivered years and years of Torahs, of teachings, of complex and simple and simply complex and complexically simple teachings that run from the heights of the systems of the Arizal and Arishonim down to Eitzos Pshutos, he describes in Torah Samech, in the 60th teaching, that there's a Torah that's even higher than the Torah that we know. And that's what he refers to as the Torah of Atika Stima'a, the ancient concealment of the Torah, or the Torah of the ancient concealment. A Torah Chadasha, a, a, a new way of understanding Torah that will redeem even those neshamos, even those souls which have fallen into such a deep slumber that nothing can awaken them. When the winds of change and the painful awareness of difficulty, where the malachamaves itself is unleashed upon the world, there is a certain unconsciousness that descends upon individuals where the heart breaks and pessimism takes hold, and an individual can be miyayish from themselves, from the klal, from the world at large. And any element of hope that a person seems to grab hold of seems to as quickly fall away in the face of the questions that emerge from the halal hapanui, the unanswerable questions that say, yes, but what if not? But what if you're wrong? But what if things don't get better? But what if this is not the stepping stones of something bigger? And in order to awaken a person from that place, from such a deep unconscious slumber, where even the irreducible remainder of the self seems to ebb away, God forbid, Rabbi Nachman says that in order to wake such a person up, you have to start teaching the Torah of Atika Stima'a, the ancient concealed Torah, or the concealed ancient Torah. And what is this Torah, says Rabbi Nachman? These are the Sipure Maisios Meshanim Kanmonios. These are the tales of ancient days, or tales that carry us back to ancient days, or tales that drag the ancient days into the present moment. However a person would like to learn 
the phrase that Rabbi Nachman applied to his stories, tales of ancient days, Sipuri Maisios Meshanim Kadmonios, from a time before time, a time beyond time, a time where the concept of time itself is obliterated, a time that doesn't feel like anything, a time that is so short and so long at once that it's eternal, that the Torah of those ancient days is the Torah of stories. And towards the end of Rabbi Nachman's short but long life, as Rabbi Nachman himself said, I am incredibly young, but I am incredibly old at the same time. Or I am incredibly old, but I am incredibly young at the same time. Rabbi Nachman decided that his teachings were not fixing what they needed to fix. That his teachings were not coming to impart upon his chassidim, in whatever level we can understand such a thing. He had gedolei am around him. He had Rabbi Nassan around him. In whatever sense we can understand that Rabbi Nachman's Torahs were not doing the trick. The Torah of Rabbi Nachman, which is Kodesh HaKadashim, was not strong enough to awaken the souls. It was not strong enough to awaken the world. And Rabbi Nachman says, I'm going to start to tell stories. As he says in the Hakdama to the first story, of the 13 tales of ancient days, the 13 stories of the Sipuri Maithios Meshanim Kanmonios, of Avedas Basmelech, the Lost Princess, of which a beautiful book from my good friend Rav Yaakov Klein is going to be coming out soon. Rabbi Nachman says, Haiti Baderach, I was walking along the way. The way, the the liminal space between home and outside and outside and home, a time, a derech is something that awakens within the mind a sense of tirda. Rav Tzadak HaKoyen Milublin in his first teaching in Rasisei Laila, darshins that derech, ubalechtecha baderech, means that it's a zman of tirda, a zman of difficulty, a zman of mindlessness. To the point that any time a person is walking on a derech, they're putter from the mitzvah of Kriyat Shema. In the sugi of the chasan on the first night of the, of the marriage. And Rav Tzadak HaKohen Milublin writes that we see from here that derech is melashon tirda. That derech implies already suffering and difficulty and confusion and concealment and bewilderment and not knowing and overwhelmingness and all of the different symptoms that an individual is feeling. And he says that this world itself is called the derech. This world itself is a path, which means, according to Rav Sadat, that this world itself is difficult, that this world itself is mindless, that this world itself is overwhelming, that this world itself is a space wherein sabrachenkeit and brokenness seem to occlude the light of clarity of the mind. And Rav Sadat HaKoyen Milublin says that this is why Chazal, when they spoke about death, when they spoke about the departure of the soul from this world, they referred to it as noyach nafshe. The soul finally had some comfort. As if to say that this world is the opposite of menucha. And that it's only when a person is not in this world that they have a taste of menucha. And Rav Tzadok associates that with the word derech. So Rabbi Nachman, when he says, Haiti baderech, I was on the path, and I began to tell tales. The stories of Rinachman, the Torah of Atika Stima'a, the Torah that is above the Torahs that he says in Lakutimaran, come to awaken a person as they fall into the deep existential slumber of confusion and bewilderment and anxiety and doubts and not knowing that a person encounters on the derech of life. 
And it's specifically here that Rabbi Nachman started telling Sipurim. Now, of the stories that Rabbi Nachman told, of the 13 tales, and Rav Tzvi Mark, who is a, a wonderful tikkun in the world of Breslov, Bederach Klal, and the world in general, put out recently the Kol Sipuri Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, showing us that there were many, many, many more stories than we're typically used to. And that there are many unedited stories and remarkable stories and dreams and fantasies. But of the Sipuri Maisios Meshanim Kanmonios, of the stories themselves, the 13th tale, the final tale, told in the year 1809, started on March 30th, on Friday night, Parsha Shmini, March 30th, 1809, this story of the Shiva Kabtsanim, of the seven beggars, in the Messiah of Breslov, in the words of Rabbi Nachman himself, is the story that is at the heart of all of the stories. It's the story of the stories. It's the entirety of what Rabbi Nachman was trying to convey. Through the stories and perhaps through the Torahs themselves. Rabbi Nachman himself, Rabbi Nachman records at the end of this Misa, Rabbi Nachman said, had I not come to the world to teach anything other than this story, had I not come to the world for anything other than the bare narrative of the story, Rabbi Nachman doesn't mean to interpret the story or to understand the symbolism of the story. Rabbi Nachman simply means the narrative of the story, which is a feverishly confusing and overwhelming one with stories within stories and corners that become doorways and doorways that become corners. Rabbi Nachman said that this would have been my entire purpose. And Rabbi Nachman elsewhere in Chaim Aran, it's recorded that he directed Rabbi Nachman, he says, if you were to go to a town and to travel for days and to stand in front of the kahila as they were davening and to clap on the bima, and instead of giving a shir and eon to deliver the bare narrative of the story, it would have been worthwhile. So this story of the Sheva Kabsanim, of the seven beggars, we're going to try and begin to learn together, begin to read a little bit together, because I cannot begin to pretend to offer an interpretation of the story. My friend Michael, who I've quoted a number of times already, would, would yell at me if I even tried to do such a thing. What I'm going to do is we're going to look at the story and we're going to try and decipher the moods that emerge from the story, not to claim what Ibn Ahmed meant with the story, Sadiqim have already said that that's not the purpose. The Mashpiei Breslov, when they want to tell over the Sipuri Maisios, they sit on Shabbos morning after Shacharis reading the bare narrative. There's no Mashpiei in Breslov who's trying to apply hermeneutical interpretations or to decipher the thematic structure of the stories. Nevertheless, we can read the story and we can decipher certain moods, certain phenomenological spaces wherein we can operate and find ourselves in this particular moment where we're all beggars, where we're all bewildered, where we're all wondering where the food is going to come the next day, where we're all wondering what's going to happen next, where we're all anticipating something big. We don't know what it, what it is, whether it's good, whether it's bad, but the world is anticipating something big. Every moment the world is anticipating something big, like the beggar who's always awaiting a gift, always anticipating, always in need, always desiring, always yearning, always hoping for something, hoping against hope, desiring against desire's end.
And we're going to try and see over the next few weeks how we can find ourselves in the moods that are elicited from the story of Rabbi Nachman. Now what we were supposed to teach tonight, or what I was supposed to try and give over tonight, was Torah Reish Pebez and Lukutamaran Chelak Aleph. The Torah of finding Nikudos Tovos. And instead of the teaching that Torah and feeling that I'm making a deviation or an interruption to those Torahs, I think that on a certain level, moving away from Lukutim Aran and entering into Sipur Maisios, in particular the Sipur of the Sheva Batlarim, the Sheva Kapsanim, the seven beggars, is not really necessarily a deviation away from the Torah of Reish Pebez, but rather it is in and of itself a kiyum of the Torah of Reish Pebez. Because as we're going to see, the basic narrative structure of the Sheva HaKabtsanim, of the seven beggars, is destitution, is dark, is concealed. Everything that you look at, at the first glance, in the basic structure of the narrative of this story, is geferlach, is broken, is impoverished, is empty, is begging, is desiring, is needing, is anxious. There's a sense of being lost, a sense of homelessness, of unheimlichkeit, of something being unhomely, something being strange and muzar. There's a sense of grief, there's a sense of loss, there's a sense of a descent away from Malchus, as we're going to see. There's a sense of being disabled, of not having a strength. But Rabbi Nachman specifically does, as Rabbi Nassim writes so often that yesh inyan that there is something, there is a concept that transforms everything, that grasps the root of the matter and shows that that which appears to be so profoundly and efficiently dark can nevertheless, once it's grasped at its root, be flipped and transformed into its very opposite so that the bad itself, Kavyachol, turns out to be the very seat of good itself. Not that the bad is removed so that the good can take its place. That's a mahalich of iskafya, of repressing negativity. But rather, the bad itself is the good. It's a darga of ishafcha, of taking all of the apparent deficiencies that one finds in this narrative of the seven beggars and recognizing that in the place of disability and deficiency, one finds uniqueness, one finds power, one finds hope. And Torah Reish Pei Beis, the 282nd teaching about the need to find Nikudos Tovos, about the need to be done as kol adam l'chavzchut, to judge every other person favorably, and more importantly, to judge ourselves favorably, to judge Hashem favorably, to judge the world favorably, is the attempt to look at circumstances that appear to be frightening, anxiety-producing, overwhelming, existentially annihilating, too frightening to even think about, depressing, and all of the different adjectives that we can use to describe the moment in which we find ourselves. And again, I have to make recourse to the, to the guest that we have. The reason that I have a picture of the Lashem Shobeva Chaloyma Schus Yogan Aleinu of Shlomo Yashov 
on my shelf right now is because for my own well-being and for my own sake, nobody, like Rav Shlomo Eliyashev, nobody like the Leshem Shabbat was capable of expressing the fact that everything we're experiencing right now, every darkness and concealment and suffolk and worry and overwhelmingness and bedidus and loneliness and isolation and non-knowing and overwhelmingness, for the Lashem, it was Dvarim Pshutim. It's part of the Sugya. This is the Naira Alila Albane Adam. This is simply part of the Mahalach. And it was the Lashem who lived with the Ramchal on his mind and lived with Rav Kuk on his mind, the Rav Kuk who lived with the Lashem, who Kuli Amalo Pligi, that as low as things seem to go, they're always perpetually elevating. And so the avoid of Reish Peveiz is no different than the avoid of the Leshem Shubhav It's no different than the avoid of the Ramchal or of Kuk or all of our tzaddikim, which is to look at darkness and confront darkness and to believe deeply that within the darkness itself, there abides a movement towards light, a growth, however incremental, however slow, however tiny it is, however frightening it is on the outside, nevertheless to believe that things are moving ever so slightly forward towards the ultimate tachlis, the ultimate purpose of the way things are meant to be. So entering into the stories, entering into the sipurim, the stories that come from ancient days, the stories that come from a time beyond history, the stories that allow us to imagine and live in a world of imagination, to take ourselves out of our marashtaira for a second, to take ourselves out of our brokenness for a second. These are the stories. These are the ability to look at the world and to say, reish pei beis, to say, I will find nekudos tovos. I will look at circumstances and I will identify that which is present and that which is real and that which is hopeful. And in spite of the fact that hopelessness abides, in spite of the fact that overwhelmingness is the flavor of the moment, nevertheless, each and every one of us has the capacity to say, Afal Pikain, even though it appears to be so opposite from what we've expected. Nevertheless, it is Daika specifically here that we have the ability to disclose the positive Nikudos Tovos, the, the lessons and the narratives of light that exists within the very darkness itself. Now this gift that Rabbi Nachman offers us to no longer be tethered to textual sources in Torah. Rabbi Nachman says, Rabbi Nassim repeats this, that the stories are not relegated to Torah necessarily. Can these stories have a million pages written on them? in terms of their symbolism and their correlation to Kabbalistic theory and Midrash Chazal, Avadai, certainly. But Rabbi Nachman was also aware that these stories are good for the whole world. These stories on a certain level are so lofty that they transcend distinction. They speak to everybody and every person wherever they may find themselves. They're fairy tales, they're fantasy, they're imaginings. They're the holy imagination of a holy, holy tzaddik. And on a certain level, it gives us permission to imagine. It gives us permission to imagine that we are at a time period, in a moment, that while it is frightening and terrifying and overwhelming, is also powerful and emerging and potentiating 
and moving towards an elevated space. Before we enter into the basic beginning or introduction of the story of the seven beggars that I wanted to speak about tonight, I want to make another detour and speak about another tzaddik for a second. And it's a tzaddik whose yard site is tonight, Noyam Elimelech, the holy Rav Melech, Rav Elimelech of Lezhensk. There was a video going around that showed that this kever, which is so packed with individuals, so packed with the Jewish people on the yard site of the holy Rebbe Rav Melech, Rav Elimelech of Lezhensk, was empty today. There was one person I saw. But nobody is, God forbid, forgetting the Rebbe Rav Melech. We're probably even more connected and hopeful that the Nisham of Rebbe Rav Melech, can be a Melitz Yosher for the world and for Am Yisrael. But I saw a Misa, I saw a story that I think will serve as a healthy introduction towards the story of the seven beggars. The Rebbe of Melech and his brother, the Rebbe of Zushya, were walking along a road, and they said to each other, you know, we experience Shabbos in such a way. Our experience on Shabbos when our Hasidim are sitting there, when we're dressed in our Shabbos clothes, when we're giving over Torah, we feel the power of Shabbos on a level that is the level of Atzilus. We experience a world that is perfect. We experience a world that is unblemished and unbroken. But the question they ask themselves is, is this real? Is this feeling and excitement that we have for Shabbos truly about Shabbos? Or perhaps it's about us. Perhaps it's about our egos. Perhaps it's about our own need for self-affirmation. And we feel good because the Hasidim are listening and nodding along. And we feel good because we're dressed in our Shabbos clothes. So they said to themselves, and these brothers were on many adventures together, adventures that we still live from. They said, let's give ourselves a test. Let's hold Shabbos during the week. Let's hold a table and invite our Hasidim and dress for Shabbos and give Torah like it's Shabbos. And we'll see if we feel as ecstatic and illuminated during the week as we do during Shabbos, then it will be clear that our excitement was shaloy lishma. It wasn't authentic. Because if the joy and excitement is truly from Shabbos, so then we shouldn't feel it during the week. But if the joy is ego-centered and egocentric, so then, yeah, we could experience that joy during the week as well, as well as we're stroking our own egos, kavyachot. Lahavdil, I don't know. So the Rebbe of Melech and the Rebbe of Zushia held their Shabbos Tishin during the week, during a time of darkness, during a time when it's the opposite of Shabbos. And they gave Torah and they were dressed in Shabbos gear. And they experienced the Hislavus that they experienced on Shabbos. They experienced the excitement. They experienced the Simcha that they felt on Shabbos. And they met each other the next morning and they said, whoa, we're messed up. It's clear now that this has all been ego. This has nothing to do with Shabbos. This is all about us. We feel good about ourselves. Woe to us, woe to us that we're serving our own ego when we thought we were serving Shabbos. So they decided to run to their Rebbe, Magadav Mezrich, Rav Dov Be'er, the Talmud Mufak, and the architect of Hasidus, 
And they came to their Rebbe, Tzabrachan, and Broken, and they said, Rebbe, Rebbe, we just discovered that we've been serving ourselves all along and we haven't been serving Shabbos. And they told the Magid the entire Maisa. They told the Magid their chashash, their fear, and their test, and what they came out with. And before the Rebbe of Melech and before the Rebbe of Zusha could even continue complaining and shrying about their lowly psychological state, Lahavdil, the Magid HaKadosh said, Shah, be quiet. What are you worried about? Are you surprised that you pretended it was Shabbos and you felt the aura of Shabbos? You could also pretend it's Shabbos and feel Shabbos. It's not because you were lying about Shabbos. It's because the Koyach of Shabbos is so strong that you can feel it even if you pretend. The power of imagination, of holy imagination, teaches us that whether we're there in holiness, in light, in comfort, or whether we're pretending to feel comfortable, we're pretending to find comfort, we're pretending to feel comforted, we're pretending to feel okay. Benkach benkach, the koyach of emuna, the koyach of Shabbos, the koyach of Hakadosh Baruch Hu, is that it makes no difference whether it's real or whether we're pretending. Even if we're pretending, even if we're in the narrative of fantastical tales of ancient days, Sipori Maisios Meshanim Kanmonios, of holy Dimyon, that alone is enough to bring comfort. That alone is enough to give us recourse to feel moments of being okay in a world that seems to be spinning faster and faster and faster. And so, Ba'ezra Sashem, as we enter into the Sipuri Maisios Meshanim Kanmonios, and the story in particular of the seven beggars, we can arm ourselves and allow ourselves to take recourse in holy imagination, to pretend for a second that we believe that at the kernel of all of the darkness that emerges into the world and all of the fear and the fright and the anxiety, there is a movement, there is a process that is moving towards light. Now, on Leil Shabbos, Parsha Shmini, 1809, Rabbi Nachman was sitting in shul, and at this point he was already struggling with a lung disease. At this point he was already having a very difficult time breathing. At this point already he was aware that part of the end of his life and part of the end of things for him was associated with the lungs and with breathing as is explicit throughout the Torah of Lukutimaran. Somebody brought Rabbi Nachman a, a box of snuff, a box of smelling, a, a, of smelling spices for Friday night to make the bracha of Bari Amine Besamim. Snuff, a snuff box. And Rabbi Nachman records in Chayim Aran that there was a letter about this snuff box. And somebody wrote in this letter that they were sending the snuff box to Breslov, to Uman. And that it was for the sake of becoming happy. And in Chayim Haran, at least in the unedited versions of Chayim Haran that C. Mark brings down on the side. And the Bir Halikutim also describes this. When Rabbi Nachman heard this, he said, I'm going to tell you how once upon a time they were happy. You think you're happy from the snuff? 
You think that's where happiness comes from? I will tell you, how once upon a time they were happy. Now here we find certain censorship issues. Because the real text, what Rav Avram ben Rav Nachman brings down and Rav Alter Teplaker Hashemim Komdomo brings down, is that Rabbi Nachman didn't just say, I will tell you how they were once happy. Rabbi Nachman says, I will tell you how once upon a time, and there was a time in the world where they found joy from within brokenness. Not in spite of brokenness. Not joy that overcomes brokenness, but rather a joy that emerges in the heart of brokenness itself. Now, if we can imagine Rabbi Nachman as a young man towards the end of his life, a man who had an infinite amount of things to do, he said, I was victorious, but there's still more to be victorious over. I have completed, but there's still more to complete. Rabbi Nachman on this cold Friday night, on the 30th of March in 1809, he says, I'm going to tell you how once upon a time they found joy from within their despondency. How once upon a time it was specifically the darkness of the world that enabled us to find a potency of joy that is much more powerful and much more intense and much more significant than the joy that can be found in times of light. Because in times of light, light is not a chiddush, light is not a novelty. Light is obvious. But in times of darkness, in times where simcha is outlined by marashchayra, by despondency, by despair, by fear, by anxiety, by all of the different feelings we might be feeling, that itself is the chiddush. The ability to find simcha from within marashchayra, to find joy from within hopelessness and despondency, that is what the tale of the seven beggars is about. That is ultimately what the entire story of these seven individuals, these seven archetypes, these seven apparent deficient creatures of lack, of loss, of desire, of absence, specifically in our confrontation with the hither side of existence, with the darker pockets of human consciousness, with the natural anxiety and fear of what will be tomorrow. That is where a person will find the ingredients of calm and comfort and excitement and joy and the weapons with which we need to fight to dispel the overwhelming darkness at times. Now, this story, as we said, is nearly impossible to follow. The narrative is so thick and so intertwined within itself, almost like a hyper-expression of the narrative of the Zohar, Lahavdil. That what Rabbi Nachman is doing in Sipurim Aisios is telling stories within stories within stories, where you no longer even know who's speaking. The Jewish poet, Paul Salan, Hashem Yim Komdomo, Hashem Yim Komdomo, a person who lived beyond that which happened, but nevertheless, 
lost his life as a result of that which happened. Paul Salan, when reading Shir Hashirim, when reading the Song of Songs, asked the simple question, whom speaks to whom? On a certain level, when a person descends into the narrative of Kedusha, of Emunah, of the attempt to connect to godliness and to connect to Hashem, we lose sight of who's speaking. Is it us who's doing the talking and Hashem doing the answering? Is it Hashem doing the talking and us doing their answering? Ultimately, the loss of the precision of knowing who's speaking to whom is a symptom of what it means to enter into a space of emuna, To live in a space of suspended knowledge, of no longer needing rationality to tell us where the narrative structure is, but rather to be carried away by the flow of the story. But Rabbi Nachman, at least at the beginning of this story, before we are introduced to the seven beggars, he gives two stages of narrative. Tonight, we're going to talk about the first stage of narrative. And next week, Be'ezras Hashem, we'll talk about the second stage of narrative before we enter into the story of the seven beggars themselves. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the framing of this story. Now. The framing of the story, what we're about to read, the Mephorshim asks, how in the world is this connected with what happens in the rest of the story? It seems to be an abrupt transition from this part of the frame towards an entirely other story. But as we're going to see, what's unique about Rabbi Nachman's stories in general, and in particular about the story of the seven beggars, is that it's endless, meaning to say there's no conclusion that we're introduced to seven beggars, the final beggar being a legless beggar, a beggar without legs. But when we encounter the beggars in the real way later on in the narrative, in the story, the seventh beggar never arrives. The seventh beggar, the ending of the story is absent. It's unfinished. And the tradition, the Mesorah, Rabbi already writes this right after the story ends in Supremaisios, that the tradition is that only with the coming of Mashiach, b'mhera b'yamenu, tekef umiyad mamish, tekef umiyad mamish, that only with the coming of Mashiach tzidkenu, of Mashiach ben David, will we encounter the seventh beggar, the final conclusion of the story, of what it means to understand the seventh beggar. But the Mephorshim say that the beginning of the story that we're going to read tonight is embedded in the end of the story that we wait to hear with the coming of Mashiach. The story starts off as follows. There was once a king who had an only son, a ruler. And the king wanted to transfer his kingdom to his son during his lifetime. Or as Rabbi Nachman writes in Hebrew, the stories were originally told in Yiddish, but Rabbi Nachman asked Rabbi Nassim to write them both in Hebrew and in Yiddish. The language is as follows. That the king wanted to give kingship over to his son in his life. Now this is a deviation from what we typically are aware of. Usually kingship is transferred onto a child through nepotism after the death of the king. After the end of a certain kingship, that is when a new kingship begins. What Rabbi Nachman is describing here is a paradoxical act of offering kingship over 
while the king is still alive. Meaning to say, and I saw this today in the writings of Rav Avram Svi Kluger, Ansipor Imaisios, Rav Avram Svi Kluger Shlita, that what it means is that Hashem Yisbarach, God wanted to create the world, so to speak, in such a way that human beings would also be able to participate in creation, that we would also have a part of this deal of existence. And for the sake of human beings having a role in existence, of human beings, the child, the son, receiving kingship in the time of the king, is the sense that we have the ability to disclose kingship in this world. That we have the choice of whether or not we want to see light or darkness. That we are armed with the responsibility, the existentially overwhelming responsibility of choice, of choosing to find Hashem. Hashem is not dead and then transferring his kingship over, but rather our job is to find kingship within the very deliberate concealment of kingship. The king hasn't departed because of some mistake or, or, or loss. The king has willfully, so to speak, removed himself so that the child can now become king. And the necessary principles of a world wherein we can acknowledge kingship, where we can acknowledge light and meaning and order, necessitates concealment. It necessitates the absence of the king. So there was the time where the king desired to give kingship over to his son in his lifetime. So he threw a grand party, which they now call a ball. Now when the king throws the ball, there is certainly great merriment, there's excitement. So especially now that he was transferring the kingdom to his son during his lifetime, there was certainly a very great celebration. And there at the ball were the royal officers and the dukes and the gentry. And the people were very merry at this ball. And the country was also enjoying this. Because the king transferring his kingdom to his son in his lifetime, this is a great honorific event for the king. There's something big going on. So a very great celebration took place there. And there were all types of festivities and excitement song groups and bands and drama groups and so forth, as well as everything useful just for the sake of happiness. It was all there at this moment of transition, at this ability of the king himself to offer kingship over to his son in his life, of Hashem Kavyachal saying to us that it's our job to decide on the light. It's our job to penetrate darkness. It's our job to find Adira Betachtonim. It's our job to transform the darkness into light. And when they had waxed very merrily, the king got up and said to his son as follows, being that I am, being that I am a stargazer, I'm an astrologer, I see that at some point you will lose your malchus. You will be no fell from your malchus. All of the joy and comfort and excitement and purpose and feeling that you feel at this moment won't last forever. It's temporal, it's vulnerable, it's transient. It stands ready to shatter and be broken into a million pieces. You can't rest assured that it will always be there. You can't take it for granted. Therefore, the king says to his son, 
See to it that you have no sadness, that you have no grief when you fall from your reign. Just be happy. Find simcha. Because if you will be happy, says the living king, I will also be happy. But the king, the father says, even if you have sadness at that moment, even if you're incapable of remaining happy as you fall away from comfort, even if you're incapable of holding on to Amuna when Kfira and Sveikos emerge and occlude the light of the sun, I'll also be happy. Because at that point, I'll be happy that you're not king. Because if you can't be happy when you lose your kingship, then you were never worthy to be king in the first place. But if you maintain your happiness, even as you fall away from your grandeur, even as you fall away from your comforts, even as the light of clarity is occluded by the clouds of confusion and overwhelmingness, then I will be doubly happy. Then I will find within myself a joy that I couldn't have imagined. Rabbi Nachman continues and he says, and he describes in the story, that the king, the king's son took over the reign very quickly, appointing royal officers and appointing wisdom and wise individuals to serve as his cabinet. And because this son of the king who became the king in the lifetime of the king loved wisdom so much, he followed after the path of the heretics, of the heretics rather. And he followed the path of Yeyush and he lost hope in Emuna. He became obsessed with rationality, became obsessed with what is real and measurable. But, Rabbi Nachman says, because this son of the king who became the king in the lifetime of the king was good at his core, had a moon at his core, there were times in the absence of faith where he would stop and he would look at himself and look at the world and he would say, where am I? Where am I in the world? Where is the world? Where is what's going on? What is the purpose here? What am I doing? How are things meant to work? How are things meant to continue? And then when he would say, hey, where am I in the world? Where is the world at at this moment? He would be filled once again with Amuna. But nevertheless, Rabbi Nachman writes, the heresy overtook the son of the king who became the king in the lifetime of the king. And he became despondent. And he became sad. And he lost hope. And he lost faith. That's the end of the first part of the narrative. The opening, the hakdama, to the story of the seven beggars. A promise of the capacity to find joy even out of despondency. To find simcha even at the heart of Marashvira. To find comfort even in an uncomfortable and compromised, frightening world. It's the ability of the king to say to his son that even though you will lose your kingship, even though you will descend into impoverishment and destitution and fear and anxiety and overwhelmingness and gvuros and dinim, nevertheless, all you need to do is to be happy. All you need to do is force yourself to be happy. Act as if. Use your imagination to find happiness. As long as you hold on to your happiness, 
And as we're going to see, Bezras Hashem, as we continue with the second Hakdama, the second narrative framing of our introduction to the seven beggars, these destitute individuals, these messengers of darkness who carry unbearable light within their satchels, these creatures of disability, the impossibility of functioning, are themselves the very site of the birth of functionality. That the doubts and the kfira itself carry within themselves the deepest resources of faith. We're going to see how the entire story, the entire narrative, the entire history of the seven beggars is all coming to tell us how the son of the king who became king in the lifetime of the king, each and every one of us, who are tasked with the task of uncovering the light of Hashem, even as he decides to hide himself, the entire story is to come to show how it's specifically on the threshold, on the abyss of losing hope and losing faith, that a person has the capacity of uncovering the deepest resources of faith, so that we can truly understand Rabbi Nachman, Aleinu's introduction to the story, how once upon a time people found joy, not in spite of darkness or difficulty, but specifically from within difficulty itself. And Be'ezra Sashem, next week we're going to be introduced to the event that takes place that sends the community into the forest, leaving two lost orphans behind, Be'ezra Sashem. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.